I'm Dave, owner of Farm Fresh Carterville. I already know my customers are some of the coolest, best people around, but checkout's a fast place and people are on the go. I decided to try to slow things down and get to know my regulars, to discover who they are, to hear their stories, to check in with the people who check out with me. On this episode of Check In Check Out, we sit down with Farm Fresh regular and military historian John Marler in the Farm Fresh studio. So, John, you were in radio. That's that's a fun that's a fun thing. So that's something we have in common. So, well, I uh, yeah. I always wanted to be on television mm. or on the radio. Okay, and growing up in Perry County, Illinois. There were a lot more opportunities for radio <laughs> for a young man than there were TV at the time. All right. Music, news? Uh... The first station I worked for was WIDB, and that's the SIU. Me too. Really? We're in the basement. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to WIDB. Absolutely. Right. When I was living in the dorms at SIU, I, I had a midnight to three or something like that shift. Nice. But the first paying job with radio was um, at the now defunct WDQN out of DuCoin. All right. All right. Interesting. Was that FM or AM? (laughs) Interestingly enough, uh, it was AM, FM, simulcast 99% of the time. Huh. Go figure. Yeah. Radio. It's it's funny. I I don't get to have so many conversations about that anymore. Seems like something, you know, nobody, nobody's talking about radio anymore. Well, it's, uh, it was run by a, uh, a family local. Mm-hmm. It was a small time operation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it gave opportunity for a lot of amateurs to start learning the craft. So for that respect, I really appreciated the opportunity. It was interesting at some point too, because there were so many like local and family owned stations just like how there were, you know, local and family-owned newspapers and grocery stores and all that sort of thing. And it sort of increasingly got gobbled up, you know. Uh, it's, a, it's a shame. <laughs> Stations, yeah. Being an independent station in today's climate in February of 2024, it's, it's hard to... Uh, it's hard to give up the reins when someone wants to buy 20 stations and you happen to be one of the 20. Then again, I mean, those opportunities don't come around all that often, so. Yeah, and if you're sitting there struggling, you know, pretty hard not to take that, you know, that knock on the door. <laughs> and, and a lot of stations are. A lot yeah. of smaller stations are. But. Yeah. Hmm. Well, so is that what brought you down, SIU, then? Is that brought you down to Carson? Yes. Yeah. That was, um, I commuted my first year. And my major declared was radio TV. Hmm. And I had a 4.0 average my first year. The second year, I moved into the dorms Hmm. and dropped down to a (laughs) 2.9. And continued to do radio, but decided I wanted to do other things. Hmm. I wanted to do game show host, but that wasn't anything that was offered. Hmm. Favorite game show? Oh, probably be Match Game or any of its variations as long as it would be uh, 
Gene Rayburn as host. Ooh, Maybe okay. a little match game 75, 76. All right, all right. Nice deep cut for our listeners. Go check that out on YouTube. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I like the talky ones. I like the, uh, the oh, let's make a deal kind of, you know, or uh, what was the um, queen for a day, you know. Not familiar. Uh, it was old, old, old. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. Growing up, uh, where I did, of course... And we lived in, in the country. We lived a mile outside of a town. And we didn't have cable when everyone else got cable. Yeah. So we were certainly limited. But most of the game shows I remember watching were off oh, KPLR Channel 11 out of St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And that included uh, Joker's Wild with Jack Berry. Oh, wow. All right. I love I love this kind of talk. I love, like, you know, thinking about, like, old television stuff. I used to watch... Uh... USA Network up all night, watch all those like terrible movies they'd put on, and uh, you know, the sorts of, like old B movie hosts that they'd have. Uh, stuff was great. Uh, don't know if they do anything like that anymore. Uh, good times, though. Yeah. So, what are you watching these days? Young Sheldon. Really? Yes, and um, the rest of the time. <laughs> I, I'm a movie person. Okay. And so I'm, I guess, a Gen X DVD guy. And I own a lot of DVDs. And the idea of being able to put in a movie, any movie I want at any time, whether it's in the background or I'm concentrating on it. But I have 20 channels. I don't have satellite. Mm. And I barely use any of those. Mm. But I'm... I'm I'm the type of person I need more than one thing going on at once. Okay. So generally, if a movie and TV's on, I'm probably reading, doing some research, maybe some house chores, constantly in motion. And when you say research, what are you researching? Oh, it depends. Um, right now, I'm a, an assistant production guy on a, a assistant producer for a, a Civil War documentary. Okay. That we're in pre-production now, and it's focused around an event that takes place in September of 2024. It's the Battle of Pilot Knob, Missouri, which a lot of people might not be familiar with that. But from where we sit in Carterville, it's an hour south of us in the Arcadia Valley, Missouri. Okay. I'm going to be concentrating on the civilians who lived in that area who actually took part in the battle, hmm. even though they were not combatants. And that's the angle myself and a lot of the other individuals are working on. So uh, researching who these people are, looking at census records, what they do for a living, what were their families like. Um, the idea that people would simply just take up arms and at a moment's notice, uh, I find that intriguing. There are instances at that battle where a lot of older citizens of Ironson and Pilot Knob, they were not able to tote a gun or fire a gun. But we have firsthand accounts to where they are ripping cartridges and handing those cartridges up to the soldier to load into mm. his musket. Mm. Or older individuals or people with disabilities are loading muskets and handing them forward 
And so those folks up front can shoot them and then hand them back. Hmm. So it's kind of like a, a fire bucket system. Yeah. And, and that's my primary focus right now. Now, how did it come that you know how to do this sort of research? Like, how did you, how did you become knowledgeable about these things? I've always had an interest in military uh, from a very young age. I started collecting helmets and uniforms, flags, what have you, when, when I was 12. Mm. I'm 55 now. And after changing majors three times at SIU, doing some sales jobs, I got an opportunity to work for the National Park Service. Okay. That's when I was 30, that was in 1999, and that's when I went to a career where my day-to-day life, my job was history. Hmm. Interesting. So were you interpreting history then for guests, or how'd that work? With the park service, I was a park ranger, Mm -hmm. but I didn't carry a gun, I I didn't put out forest fires. I was with the divisions known as historical interpretation. And our job is to take the facts, as can be proven in a multitude of ways, but then put them into a story where a, a group of individuals can understand what happened mm-hmm. and uh, maybe even draw some similarities between that experience and maybe something they've experienced in their life. It's, it's, it's really about connecting the people to the resource. Hmm. Interesting. Well, do you know if there was, um, like, would you know stories from around here, like here in our community? One of my favorite Civil War areas to study, I've had this one on the back burner on and off for years, but Southern Illinois was pro-slavery and pro-South to uh, for many people in the region. John A. Logan was originally pro-slavery. Hmm. And then there were some things that changed in people's minds. Uh, but S- Southern Illinois was not unlike Missouri in that there were a lot of guerrilla bands. There were pro-Southerners, 20, 40 guys at a time. Uh, harassing pro-union individuals Hmm. and for our purposes locally the uh, the bridge both railroad and wagon bridge over the Big Muddy uh, just south of DeSoto Mm -hmm. that was a post for federal troops early on in the war to guard the bridge they weren't guarding it against the Confederate Army. They were guarding it against roving bands of Southern sympathizers who want to disrupt commerce. Hmm. Governor Yates, was governor at the time, sends down a force of Springfield, some artillery pieces, a bunch of soldiers, and they have one job, and that's to guard that bridge. Hmm. And everything is on private property, so one must have permission, and I've had that permission. So I've been able to explore a lot of the uh, original earthworks, artillery positions and um, dugouts or foxholes, as they would be known in more modern terms. I also have friends who have done some archaeological work there and have pulled out some really nice uh, 
artifacts from that period. Hmm. Is this um these these locations are these uh, being preserved? Is there any attempt to to maintain those? No, no, no because. Uh, that involves two things. It involves money and it involves bureaucracy. The vast majority of, of quote, Civil War sites are not protected. Petersburg National Battlefield, when I worked for them, we owned less than 5,000 acres of original battlefield property. Now, to put that in context, Petersburg was a nine and a half month siege that extended for miles and miles north, south, east, west. So 5,000 acres may seem like a lot, but it also, that money aspect, that has to be driven by tourism. And since there were no battles fought in Illinois during the American Civil War, there's not a lot of traffic for Civil War tourists. Hmm. And what can be discovered at a site like that? How the men were equipped, because we know based on records that some of them showed up in Southern Illinois from up north with no muskets, or some had muskets and no bullets. Hmm. Uh, so they were somewhat of an ill-prepared force, and I'd like to see evidence of that. Did they have tents? Did they build uh, permanent or semi-permanent quarters? We don't know. Anything that helps us understand that activity, anything that we can take from that knowledge and discern as being important or still relative, and then we'll put that into a system or a matrix where we can share it with others who might also gain something from that knowledge. Interesting. So this is this is I mean a pretty organized effort of people like you know nationally I guess mm -hmm. uh, all sharing their findings. Absolutely, huh. the internet is everything. Always will be now, mm -hmm. um, but to be able to research in an hour what might have taken months, mm -hmm. and being able to have contact with people whether it's across the U.S. or around the world who are working on the same research project, uh, being able to you know, commiserate with uh, efforts of struggling to find something. and Ultimately, research comes down to just, uh, I like the, to phrase it as, the key to any success is sustained effort. And research is a lot of sustained effort. What's been the most um, most interesting thing you've kind of hit upon lately? Hmm. Or I guess the most promising rabbit hole. There's so many. <laughs> um, I have been sharing online a project that I worked on years ago, but that I hadn't discussed with anyone in a decade. And that was when I was working for the Battle of Franklin Trust in Franklin, Tennessee, as a battlefield guide. I also, in my spare time, my private time, I conducted a artifactual artifacture rescue artifact search of a Civil War home 
that's in the very center of the battlefield at Franklin, Tennessee. Hmm. And two years I spent in that dirt floor cellar and documented over 900 Civil War era artifacts hmm. to include bullets, um, pieces of shrapnel, iron shrapnel, doll parts, marbles, foodstuffs, and, and most of it very well preserved. Hmm. And it was it was initially just done because the guy that owned the property is a friend of mine. He said, come check it out. Then when I started bringing up things that were unexpected, now, hey, let me at least write some sort of brief or report on this. And that turned into, let's do a DVD. Let's produce a documentary based on this seller dig. So in 2013, that was released. And so there is a DVD documentary. There is a companion guide that I wrote. And um, it's a labor of love. Hmm. You spend 24 hours by choice on a weekend in the cellar of a dirt floor home built in 1858. <laughs> a lot of dust. Areas to where I could only crawl on my stomach. And it was worth every minute. Nice. And that's good, too, like, to be able to, you know, help those things from just completely disappearing. Um, I always think it's interesting when things sort of, like, turn up. Like, you know, at some point in time, something was very important to someone. And then, at some point, it's not. And it ends up in your lap somehow. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and where did it go in the meantime? What happened to it in the meantime? And that is, it is an interesting, you know, question. I think, I think I run into things like that at the store sometimes, like, you know, about the, just the history of the store itself and the, the sort of nature of its construction and the little notes that I find, you know, written on a wall or like the, just the various people that have worked there and the, stories that they tell me well and i think it's often kind of interesting to me that that idea what you're talking about uh, whether it's a vibe or a feeling that's one of the reasons i come to farm fresh Mm. and that's one of the reasons i like coming to that store Mm. is because all of those things that you just mentioned those things are evident i think at least they were to me the first time I walked through the door. Hmm. Farm Fresh, Carterville. It's a little bit of an institution. Mm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's got some chops. It's been sure. around. Yeah. And I, I love, too, that it just connects with people, like, on that level, that they that they feel compelled to share those stories. Um, and I know, like, I know that, that I want to share those stories. I, I like, I'm, I'm eager to hear those from people. I, it's like, it's always interesting, like to feel like you're sort of like, not the owner of something, but like almost like the caretaker of something like, you know, cause there are a history of owners before me. Right. Like, so I'm just like one in the line and who knows who is next or what will happen next. I like, I like that it's a story. I like that it's hopefully an ongoing story um, and an interesting one. It's maybe not so interesting if you're talking about a Walmart or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, not the same. Yeah, not the same. Huh. Uh, 
So do you uh, do you get involved in other types of history beyond the military? Uh, there are certain aspects. I am a big fan of what's known as the Lord Franklin expedition. Okay. That's 1845, 1846. It's a British expedition meant to find the Northwest Passage. Mm. In other words, two British warships who had been modified for Arctic use are coming across the Atlantic. Once they hit the Arctic Circle area, they feel that there is a passage that will take them all the way to the Pacific. And it's a, it's a project or an adventure for a lot of different explorers for years leading up to that. But the thing about the Franklin Expedition is they had all of these great uh, newer ingenuity type of uh, assets. They had a lot of things to help keep them entertained. Hmm. There was a pump organ on one of the ships. Oh, there wow. was a library filled with thousands of books. This is going to be a two, three, two, three year expedition. Everything they need, they're taking with them. Uh, they uh, were the ships specially fitted with steam engines and had propellers to help them navigate their way through the ice hmm. or when uh, sails weren't readily available. Hmm. Uh, and with the exception of four graves and with the exception of some bones, the, the remains of the rest of those and the ultimate demise isn't completely known. It's a mystery. Hmm. Still. And the two ships, the HMS Erebus and the HMS Terror, have recently been found. Really? Within the past couple of years, and it's very hush-hush, it's, it's the Canadian Parks Service that's working on it because it's their property. The ships are still owned by England. But here's the kicker. When they sank, they sank upright. Fairly shallow water, less than 100 feet, 200, less than 140 feet deep. But because the water is so cold, so many things have been preserved. Mm. To include paper materials that can still be read. Wow. So, in some ways, like the Titanic, Titanic, but not as deep and a lot older. Interesting. Well, that should be fascinating. Well, that that should be fascinating. I tell you, there's a. If I'm doing military and I'm doing something closer to home, mm -hmm. I love finding the pieces in antique stores or estate sales or yard sales around here and then researching and maybe finding some sort of connection between that piece and an individual or a particular military unit or what have you. And then... With, with some exceptions, then I, I turn around and I sell the item and the history that goes with it. Interesting. So you're able to find that, that like provenance then. Mm -hmm. And that story, I mean, that's what makes it sometimes, I don't know if I want to say valuable, but it certainly generates part of the interest. Of, that's exactly uh, right. Yeah. It generates the interest. Now, as a, as a military uh, buyer, seller, collector, a lot of my academic friends and I would agree that don't buy the story, hmm. buy the artifact. Because anyone can create a certificate of authenticity. Hmm. Anybody can sell you a bowl of the, they can say was picked up at Gettysburg. Hmm. Uh, but real provenance, 
Real provenance is me having a suitcase made in the 1920s. Me having a suitcase that my grandfather used in 1933 when he went to the Civilian Conservation Corps. And he took that suitcase from Percy, Illinois and Randolph County all the way out to Cougar, Washington mm. and then back in 1934. I know it's a suitcase because he has his name on it. I know the age because I researched the model. But the provenance is the photograph I have of him and a bunch of his buddies waking up one morning. They've been traveling around. He's got a few days off work. And there's his suitcase opened up. And you can see that exact same suitcase and pattern because it's sitting in my front room. Interesting. Interesting. Connecting the artifact with the story. Mm. And see, and then that goes back into historical interpretation because what I just shared with you is the way I might share that with an audience. Sure, sure. I've just been fortunate to be put into a lot of situations that I just never could have dreamed that I would, I'd be the guy. I mean, I want to be the guy that finds things. And I spent three months in the summer of 2012, my job working on my own was to look for Civil War artifacts in the very center of the Battle of Franklin, Tennessee. Hmm. The reason being is because they were going to build, or they did build, a senior living center over that property. Hmm. So for a limited time, the company that I worked for had permission, and that's all I did. 12, 12 hours a day, five days a week. Just digging for things, huh? What's even more interesting is when I find something on that battlefield site, Yeah. and I say, well, this is shrapnel from a three-inch three inch ordnance rifle, which is a type of cannon, well, the only three-inch ordnance rifles that were in the area that could have fired this type of projectile to where I'm standing, well, those are the guns of the 1st Chicago Battery of the Light Artillery, the Chicago Board of Trade guns. Hmm. So we know where those cannon were positioned by the federal troops, the northerners. We know what type of uh, ordnance they were firing, and we know where they were aiming, and that's key. Uh -huh. Because they're aiming at the enemy. And the distance from where they're aiming to the enemy at that point is less than two football fields. Wow. So you're working backwards in a way. Like, you were, you were, you were able to chart the movement of the battle then based on the type of ordinance, where you find it, and knowing the... I would assume the approximate range that something like that could be thrown. See, in the military, even as it is today, they just run on paperwork and information and, and triplicate. Every projectile, every shell, every cannonball that was fired was recorded hmm. by that artillery crew. That would have been a person that's all they did hmm. because they have to keep count of what they have so they can get restocked. But they also want to know what they needed in order to be effective in that particular situation. Hmm. So looking over those records again, they can say, well, hey, next time we'll do X, Y, and Z. There is a position where I found a lot of uh, bullets 
Civil War bullets made of lead, and it's a, it's a softer, more malleable lead than, than what one might see today. And the ones we were finding, or I was finding, had what I would term high-velocity impact. Hmm. So instead of being, say, uh, a conical shape, oh, about you know, maybe the size of a marble with a point on it, the ones I was finding were all flat. Hmm. And that's because they had hit something and hit something hard traveling at high speed when the bullet was. Well, once an individual starts staking out, okay, here's this bullet, here's a stake. Now we find this next one, here's a, we'll put another stake. Then once we have enough stakes, I step back and immediately I could see it was an infantry formation hmm. because there were two distinct rows. And that particular company or regiment that was standing in double row there, those were Confederates firing up towards those three-inch guns we just talked about. Hmm. And as they were standing there, they were being shot at, but they were being hit. Hmm. A lot of them. And they were going down. Hmm. And so that flattening of the projectile then is the evidence that they were hit. It means that it hit something. Hmm. There were no trees in that area at the time. Uh, it was open field. So it's either hitting a person or that person's equipment, a musket, a belt buckle, a bone. Hmm. It's grim. Yes. Yeah. Does the enormity of that hit you sometimes when you're out in those places? In what respect? Like the, the scope of a battle like that, the scope of a war. It's overwhelming, and I struggle so often to, I need to narrow things down. So when I was working on that particular project at Franklin, once the project I was well invested, all I concentrated on was the, I don't know, the eight or ten acres that, that were around me. And I wouldn't pay attention to any other stories from anything outside of that perimeter. Hmm. And then once the report was completed, and that's when I start taking into account the other aspects. But I get really hyper focused. I see. I think that probably is a good probably is a good thing, honestly, in that line of work. It's a lot of quiet time. It's a lot of time spent in one's head. And uh, that's not always a bad thing. Hmm. Anything we didn't cover today that you would like to talk about? No, I'm just grateful for the opportunity. So thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. This has been terrific. Check In, Check Out is produced by me, Dave Armstrong, with original music from John Michael Wiggs. Thanks for listening.